Hello and welcome to Things We Said Today, our weekly podcast about anything and everything to do with the Beatles, both as a group and as solo artists, past, present, and things to come. And we have some things to come tonight. I'm Alan Cozen, the author of The Beatles From the Cavern to the Rooftop and Got That Something, How the Beatles' I Want to Hold Your Hand Changed Everything, and formerly the Beatles' desk at the New York Times, currently a music writer for the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and several other publications. I'm joined by my esteemed co-hosts, Ken Michaels, who you will know is the host of the syndicated radio show, Every Little Thing. Hello, Ken. Hi, Alan. Hi, everybody. And Darren DeVivo, who you know from WFUV-FM in the New York area, a longtime host. And uh, Darren, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I guess I passed the audition with the first show two weeks ago, So, because I'm back. Yep. They kept me around. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So I'm surrounded by radio guys. What is this? Um, <clears throat> so this week, uh, we basically are so inundated with news that uh, we're going to be talking about some of the things that have occurred since the last show and will be occurring uh, within the next several weeks. And uh, there's an awful lot to say as we are taping this show it's only hours after the press release dropped from universal about the white album 50th anniversary edition or editions and uh, even though in the past week or so an awful lot of information about it has leaked out it's great to see a complete track listing and we're going to talk about that but there's a whole lot of other news too since the last time we spoke uh, Egypt Station, Paul's new album, hit number one on the Billboard charts. Ken, do you want to talk about that? Sure. Well, first of all, I'd like to say that while everybody's saying that it hit number one, and uh, many reports are saying his first number one since Tug of War in 1982, mm -hmm. which is true, you rarely ever hear anybody say it debuted at number one. And the reason why I bring this up is because never in the history of the Beatles has any of the solo albums ever debuted at number one. This is the first time it's ever happened. Right. And, um, you know, I think it's quite an accomplishment. We can debate whether or not it means that much anymore to have a number one album. Mm -hmm. um, and debuting at number one is becoming very commonplace these mm -hmm. days. Right. But for a guy that's 76 years old, to be that relevant still, to be able to debut at number one, the sales figures were, I believe, 153,000 copies. Um, I have to give most of the credit to Paul himself because radio, as I've mentioned before, there's only one or two formats of radio that will play Paul's new music. And so the amount of airplay that he will get with his uh, new music is minimal. So most of the promotion behind Egypt Station came from Paul himself. And when you think about all that he's done in the last couple of months, it's staggering. And in particular, I have to give a lot of credit to the Carpool Karaoke sketch with James Corden, which proved to be a master stroke, which got so much attention, people spreading it all over Facebook, 
it got a lot of people interested in what Paul was doing now. Not just his loyal fan base, but you know, a lot of casual fans that may not keep up with Paul's latest activities. And between that and everything else that he's done, all the concerts at um, at Abbey Road Studios and the Cavern and at Lippa and Grand Central Station and and uh, just um, last week he did a concert for Spotify listeners and all this attention that he's been drumming up that really helped to cause this to happen. Was it really a concert for Spotify listeners or just the video of the Abbey Road concert? It's the video of Abbey Road. Yeah. It's not a unique, a, a special, exclu- sorry, uh, special exclusive uh, performance. It was just, I guess, Spotify making that Abbey Road performance available. I mean, I'd love for it to come out on a physical format, but that's a topic for another day. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but not something that was uh, a new performance uh, specifically for Spotify. Right. Okay. So it looks like, in a way, he has bypassed radio and gone directly to video, you know, either TV as such, in the case of James Corden, or YouTube, in the case of um, uh, the Grand Central concert, or Spotify carrying the video of, of the Abbey Road. It's yeah. interesting. But he, he's done so much, you've got to give him a lot of credit. Yeah, he has... Uh, busted his butt to promote this album you gotta you gotta give him that um but i'm not to, uh, can i if i could chime in i just absolutely. thought of something i don't know how much he's busted his butt in the past with albums that have debuted well but not at number one um i don't mean to play devil's advocate but i wonder if the number one is also a reflection of the age we're in and the amount of units that were sold possibly you know to you know it takes less today in 2018 to hit to have a debut at number one than it did even five years ago right uh you know mccartney you memory serves correct he, mccartney did a nice uh bit of promotion for new he sure did new he did, did not new did not debut at number one i'm trying to pull it up here it debuted at uh well at least reached three that's probably the debut Three on then, and and when we're talking, we're talking specifically Billboard's top two hundred album chart. When we throw around number one, number three, it's all pretty much the Bible is Billboard and their top two hundred. But mm. uh, you know, Paul put a decent amount of uh, publicity, if memory serves correct, behind New. New only reached number three, and that was probably the debut. Same thing with Memory, almost full, number three. Uh, yeah. But New reached one. Uh, I'm sorry, Egypt Station debuts at one. Why? possibly because it needed less copies sold in the first week to accomplish that. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, I mean that, you know. You know, listen, in during the Beatles era, selling 150,000 copies of an album would basically get your label contract canceled. It wouldn't get you to number 1. It was it's it's a totally different world. Um mm-hmm. and that's why in a way the the charts are kind of a I don't know, they they're probably less relevant now than anything but you know that said paul comes from a time when the charts were relevant and all of us who follow this stuff come from a time when the charts were relevant and it it kind of is a kick to have the thing be you know debut at number one it's you know Mm -hmm. it's nice thing but it's not quite the accomplishment that it was when you had to sell a million and also you got to look at what the competition was doing at the time of each release right 
because mm -hmm. um, there may have been, like right now, when Paul debuted at number one, Eminem had released his new album and the sales went down for his new album. But if you take a look at the new album or previous albums, Memory Almost Full, look at the, the competition and how well those copies were selling then. Mm -hmm. It may have been an easier time for Paul to have a number one album, but still, no matter how you look at it, this is part of the record books now. And he'll always be able to say he had a number one album in 2018 at the age of 76, which is, is it's extraordinary. It still is something to be very proud of. Yes, mm -hmm. but, but like Roger Maris, there may be an asterisk. <laughs> <laughs> well, they haven't done the asterisk thing yet when, uh, by Billboard. That's uh, true. So like what Ken said... Holds true. A number one is a number one. That's true. Uh, whether you win a game two to one or 20 to one, it doesn't matter. It's a win. Yeah. Mm -hmm. there's, there's, um, a, there's another well, question, too, though, that, you know, I believe doesn't um, don't streaming plays count in on this. And um, a lot of these sort of package things that have to do with you buy a ticket to a concert, you get the album that counts as an album sale. Right, 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 right. So. I think Ken had said to me some months ago when we were talking or somebody, a friend of mine, possibly, or Ken might have said something about getting a free something was coming because we bought tickets to a McCartney concert. Well, it turns out last year's tour netted me a copy of Egypt Station, which I had forgotten was going to be coming in the mail. Uh, a friend of mine got two copies uh, because he bought two tickets or at least he bought two tickets to one show or some combination of that that counted into the sales mm -hmm. so you could kind of put together a promotion like this to try to up your sales if you feel you know a high chart position is possibly within is a possibility let's give them a copy for every ticket we sell i had posted on my uh a facebook page and i don't know if i interpreted these stats right and i don't know if I think the, uh, the source was, was reputable that I got these from, but it said, and I think Ken pointed this out, that Egypt Station, in their words, earned the number one position because of 153 equivalent album units sold. And 153 units were 147,000 CDs and vinyl. Mm -hmm. 6,000 uh, were a combination of streaming and downloading and 5,000 streaming units were of that 6,000. So the smallest portion of sales were downloaded albums, only 1,000. Which tells you that most of McCartney's fans are old school and they want the physical format. Right, right. And of the digital people, I think this is the case across the board, regardless of artist or genre, everyone is moving towards streaming and away from downloading. Mm -hmm. Or the majority, I guess. You also have to factor in, and I remember the, the very good joke that Alan said <laughs> a couple of weeks ago that uh, Paul may have had uh, sales of a million copies through four people because of uh, all the different variations of Egypt Station. Right. And there are all the fans who have to buy the vinyl, too, and the colored vinyl and the different mm -hmm. colored vinyl. And you got to get the target version for two extra tracks. And, you know, there's so many different versions. And last you week, you last time that. you guys were joking that there wasn't a cassette to collect. And now there is. Yes. <laughs> and I ordered two copies of the cassette. 
<laughs> which has not come yet. Actually, come to think of it, I think I have all colored vinyl variations and the cassettes. Uh, we all have the CDs. And In probably, plus last week's, uh, our show two weeks ago, maybe we're responsible for Egypt Station <laughs> being the number one. <laughs> Alan, Darren, and Ken are the reason why Egypt Station is number one. But, you know, it's not, it was a nice accomplishment. A number one is a number one. It goes into the books. Yep. Um, to think that there was, um, it wasn't until the mid-70s that there was an album, and I hope I'm remembering this correctly, it wasn't until the mid-70s that there was an album that would debut at number one. It was unheard oh, that- of until... Elton John. Yeah, Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy. Yeah. Really? And then I think he did it again with the next album, Rock of the Westies. Yes, he did. And Stevie Wonder then did it, I think, with Songs in the Key of Life. I think so, yeah. That's the mid-70s, all three of those albums. And to think that, you know, that was the first time it happened. And, and, and I don't even know how many millions of pre-orders there had to be for that to happen and now here we are in 2018 and paul sells 153,000 units and that's good enough for number one that speaks volumes of where the industry is today mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. still it's something to be proud of i gather Absolutely. this week it goes down to number seven or eight something like that that's what i heard yeah. eight is what i heard but mm. and that that's what will happen now because everybody i guess when sound scan the means to immediately uh, 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 record sales as opposed to waiting for for uh, sales to be reported. It could take weeks. That's why when, when we were younger, an album would come out or a single. It would debut and it would slowly creep its way up the charts. And the the pace in which it uh, uh, sing, the single or the album would go up depended upon reports being filed by mail, uh, over the phone and all these stats on sales and everything then being recorded and it took time and then sound scan comes along and point of purchase sales are immediate and that's when you started to have these albums uh, that would debut very high up on the charts if not at number one and then drop like uh, lead weights because everyone who wants it bought it in the first week mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so for those who don't you know totally get the how that all, you know, how that all impacts sales. You'll see McCartney debuts at number one. Now he'll drop to eight. And then in two weeks, he could very well be in the 30s, you know, and then gone before you know it off the charts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as I've said on this show, and sometimes I've talked to Alan and to Darren privately about this. The reason why that is, is like Darren said, all of the, the loyal fans go and buy it quickly within the first few weeks. And unless another audience, like younger people, get exposed to this music, then there's no reason to keep it on the charts, and it's going to sink very fast. I remember just a few years ago, James Taylor released an album, and it was his first album in a long time. It was over 10 years, I think, and it hit number one, and it was off the charts fairly quickly after that. So a lot of these veteran artists, that is what will happen. You know, it'll only be on the charts for a few months. But in order for an album to have any kind of real impact, it has to have continued airplay or exposure to other audiences that normally wouldn't buy, in this case, the Paul McCartney album. So I have a suggestion for Paul. Next time, what he should do is first put out the CD the first week. 
The next week, put out the Target version with the extra tracks. The third <laughs> week, put out one version of the vinyl. <laughs> in other words, instead of, you know, all of us went out and bought all of the versions that we were going to buy all in the first week. But, you know, maybe if he staggered the versions that are out there, um, he would have a longer sa- staying power at the top of the chart. That's probably that's something many artists are going to be doing now mm-hmm. in the future for their releases. And with cassettes now somehow making their way at least back onto the <laughs> radar, I'm not exactly sure why, but who <laughs> knows if the A-track is uh, yeah, really? going to, or the reel-to-reel tape going to make its uh, oh, return. And we could milk this and have a number one album for six months at this rate. <laughs> mm-hmm. Don't give Paul any ideas. You can put out the Laserdisc <laughs> version of the Grand Central. <laughs> <laughs> and we do know that there, there's been talk about a deluxe version of Egypt Station. Right. Which, depending oh, on what you've heard, it may come out before the end of the year. There's no guarantee about that, but there's another 10 songs, Paul has said, that he's recorded. And I'm sure that's going to come out. So that'll factor into the sales, too. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Um, I-, I wonder how much of what Paul does with Egypt Station is arranged around the release of the white album and the other way you know the the 50th anniversary packages of the white album and vice versa and if you know egypt station possibly still he attempts to squeeze it out before christmas or if it's a 2019 release um so as not to get you know slaughtered by the white album uh set coming in early november mm-hmm. you know it's a good question that um, because you just brought this up with the release of this with Egypt Station, then the Imagine box set, then the White Album, is the, all the competition really benefiting in this case Egypt Station, or does it hurt the sales? Who knows? You know, because it's keeping Paul's name out there with the White Album coming out. So in some ways, it's a benefit. You know, what do you think? I, that's an interesting question. That's a good point. Is there such a thing in this day and age as uh, with with an artist like Paul and and the Beatles collectively? Is there such a thing as oversaturation? Mm-hmm. I know that I will figure out a way to get all of this product. There are some Beatle fans on, say, Facebook that you'll see complaining of all of this stuff coming out at one time and who's deciding which they're going to go with and what they're going to wait to buy. And it's a good point. And I wonder if there is, uh, if there's the possibility that there could be oversaturation. I notice we don't hear any more about the next two McCartney archive releases. I would think it's a safe bet. Those are going to get pushed off uh, because initially didn't they, didn't Paul say, or wasn't there talk that, Late this year, we'd get the Deluxe Wildlife and Red Rose Speedway. Mm-hmm. And now yep. that kind of like went away, f- you know, for the time being. Mm-hmm. Or actually went away totally. You never hear those mentioned again. Well, actually, I just did see something on Facebook today about that, about the vinyl coming out for those two in December, on December 7th. But I don't, I can't say that there's any confirmation behind that. Hmm. So maybe the vinyl will come out first and then the CDs after that. We'll have to wait and see. But I think it would be wise just to push it back a little (laughs) with all this other stuff coming out. So, yeah. 
So we should move on because we have a lot of topics to cover. Um, and we still have at least one or two Paul-related topics to cover before we get to the White Album. So um, let's talk a bit about uh, the set list for the Canadian leg of the Freshen Up tour. Um, any observations about that, Ken? Um, <laughs> I'm not too thrilled with it because it's called Freshen Up Tour and there's very little <laughs> freshening up. Um, <laughs> the only uh, changes that he's made are the three songs from Egypt Station. And in a way, I'm even disappointed that there's only three songs from the album, because if you take a look at what he was playing originally, I believe at uh, Abbey Road and um, it might have been at the Cavern, he was doing Confidant, but he's not doing that in the set list. The only uh, three songs that he's doing are the same same ones he did at Grand Central, mm -hmm. which are Come On To Me, For You, and Who Cares. Right. And the only other changes that I noticed was that he brought back Let Him In which is nice. Um, he played Michelle, which he tends to do in countries where they, there are French-speaking people. And, um, and, and he uh, added From Me to You, which, which is a nice surprise. But that's about it. And I'm really I'm stunned that he's not shaking up the set list at all. And uh, maybe as the tour goes on, He'll take some songs in and remove some. I heard an interview that he gave in Canada, which we're going to talk about a little bit later on, where the person who interviewed him said, how come you never do anything like silly love songs anymore? And he did say in this interview that they were considering it. So you never know what's in the pipeline. You never know what they're thinking about doing, what they may add to the set list and take out. For Paul, the difficult decision is what to take out because he likes doing all these songs. Mm -hmm. But he's still doing basically the same set list, way too heavy for my taste on the Beatles. And I'm surprised that he's still doing something like being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. You know, um, I, I, I'm sort of disappointed, but at the same time, I know that there are going to be people out there who at this point will feel that there's no point in ever criticizing Paul or Ringo for their set list because they don't have to be doing this and we should be grateful for whatever they do for the rest of their lives. And, um, and I agree with that point of view as well. But I would hope that with a catalog as rich as Paul's, and I think he has the greatest catalog of all time if you combine his solo stuff with the Beatles, there's so much stuff he's never done before from his solo catalog. Very little from the Beatle days as far as songs that he sang lead to. But, um, you know, there's so many songs I'd love to hear him do. And if he's worried about songs that the public may not be familiar with, the more casual fans, there are hit songs that he's never done live before. You know, I'm still questioning why he's never done something like Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey. You know, it was a number one hit in, in America, and he's never done it live. So uh, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed, but at the same time, I'm thrilled that he loves doing this. He really enjoys doing these concerts, or else he wouldn't be doing them. And I still feel that no matter what, we should be grateful. Good points. I mean, I don't really even pay attention to his set lists anymore, because I know that from the point that he resumed touring in 89, his set lists, basically any changes are usually subtle. Uh, they're minor. Uh, you've got the massive hits that he has to do that we would love for him not to do for a change of pace. <laughs> hey Jude, Live and Let Die, etc. But he has to do those. And he's got a lot of has to do songs. 
which leaves little room for the tunes that he could swap in and out. And in those, he doesn't swap them in and out all that much. So I kind of have given up. He plays what he plays. Whenever he comes through the New York City area, I'll be there. And uh, some of the things I've found is, as he's gotten older, there were some songs I wish he would retire because he can't execute them anymore vocally. Mm-hmm. I'm okay with never hearing Maybe I'm Amazed live again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love Maybe I'm Amazed, always will. Happy I've heard him perform it, but I'd ra- I think I'd rather not hear him perform it anymore. And there's a substitution he could make. But that's how I would base the changes uh, to a set list on. What can he still uh, handle? What can he still sing live? Mm-hmm. But I gave up a long time ago really analyzing the set lists and, all oh, he's doing, you know, he's doing this, he's doing that. Why? I don't understand. Boy, he could do. Uh, Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey is an interesting choice, but I would think that that would be kind of an awkward song to do live because it's got so many stop, stop starts effects little <laughs> gimmicks and all um mm-hmm. i'm sure there's a way to figure out to do it but i'd love to hear him do with a uh, um uh listen to what the man said a little more often mm-hmm. but he's brought that back see and there's also i i tend to forget from if he, what he was doing on tour 10 plus years ago i don't remember so mm-hmm. sometimes i'll hear him do something I go ah wow it's great to hear this one he did it several tours darren i don't remember mm-hmm I can't keep up, <laughs> but um, I have more of an issue actually with the name of the tour. When I heard the tour was called Freshen Up, I thought, oh, that's co- really Freshen Up, Paul. I mean, it sounds like, you know, it's a, you know, like a handy wipes commercial. Or a, <laughs> I yeah, thought it's Freshen Up gum. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even some of the ones up and coming and really, Paul? You could do better than that. Freshen up is like, oh. Why does a tour need a name anyway? (laughs) Right. Yeah, right, right. (laughs) I kind of feel the same way with Roger Waters naming tours like, you know, Us and Them. Roger, that's a 30-some-odd-year-old Pink Floyd song. You couldn't come up with a better name for your current tour? (laughs) Or In the Flesh. We've used that a few times already as well. Anyway, so, but Ken hit the nail on the head. Let's be thankful that Paul's out there still doing it. And with a massive, as even though his catalog is as big as it is, the catalog of songs he must do is also enormous. So that's eating up half your set right there. So, but you can question a lot of those songs. Yeah. I mean, in almost every single tour, he does Blackbird. And don't get me wrong, I love Blackbird, but I wish he'd give it a rest. I know it's a great song, especially on acoustic guitar. You know. Why is it he drops the long and winding road, but he has to do Eleanor Rigby? I mean, what is the difference? True. (laughs) True. I agree with you. There are songs like that. There are a lot of songs that, uh, and I break it down as A-level songs that you feel he must do, the B-level ones. Those are the ones that he swaps around that make the show interesting. He might do, for example, um, I've just seen a face one show and then I'm looking through you the next to substitute it. So when he makes those changes, as he's done in the past, that's what keeps it interesting for me. But th- there are tons of songs that he's done in his solo catalog in particular. You know, I, I don't understand why he can't do something like like Take It Away, you know, yeah. or, or, or um, uh, Hill and Wheels, which would be a great live song, a great yeah. rocker yeah. right there. You know, and those are songs that were hits 
that even casual fans, unless they're very young, should know. You know, it's not like he's he's not doing the songs, you know, and love like as Ringo would say. And in one show, I remember not long ago, he did as he's still doing in spite of all the danger. And there were people that got up out of their seats and walked out during that because they didn't know it, despite the history behind that song. So, you know, I just don't know why he can't shake it up a little bit more. Yeah, that's like, true. Like I said, I, I grateful I will see him no matter what. If he sang yesterday 30 times in concert, I would still go. <laughs> that's how loyal I am. But at the same time, I, I recognize his catalog as being, to me, the greatest catalog of all time. So I wish that he'd showcase it more. Is know? he still doing temporary secretary? No, he's not. But, you know... And, and I don't, I don't mean, I don't mean to to make a big detour here, but I just want to make one comment here because Darren, I know you and I both saw Paul Simon in concert in mm-hmm. the last week or so, and right. it was a magnificent show. And to to make a contrast there, Paul Simon did 26 songs live, only five of them were Simon and Garfunkel songs. Compare that to how many Beatles songs Paul does live to his solo music. I mean, Paul is basically 60% Beatles in concert. That's an awful lot of Beatles songs. I wish it was spread out more. You know, Simon and Garfunkel were great. I love Simon and Garfunkel. But the Beatles are the zenith of Western civilization. You know, there's, there's, there's simply no comparison between the Beatles catalog and anything else that has ever happened. And that includes Paul's solo catalog. So I can understand why he wants to do all these Beatles songs. He knows that, you know, look, you said before, uh, Carpool Karaoke got people interested in his new stuff. I'm not sure about that. I think Carpool Karaoke got people interested in hearing him talk about the Beatles. Because how many millions of people watched Carpool Karaoke and 150,000 people bought the new album? Mm-hmm. You know, it's not as if everybody who was charmed by him on Carpool Karaoke, and lots and lots of people were, thought, you know, wow, I'll listen to his new thing. It didn't happen. You know, it's the Beatles, and he understands it's the Beatles. That said, um, I'm beginning to see a lot of people on Facebook and elsewhere saying, couldn't he give Hey Jude a rest? You know? Yeah. Much as everybody loves Hey Jude, you know, you know what you're saying is is right. You know, some there a lot of these things that he thinks you must play, maybe you don't must play them. You know, maybe also the thing. Here's another thing. I I feel pretty sure that at this point, people who go see him live have seen him live before. I don't know that you're getting that many people who at this point are going to see Paul McCartney for the very first time. So they've seen him do Hey Jude however many times they've gone to see him. You know, and they've seen him do Yesterday. And they, I think people understand that he has a huge catalog and that you're getting, hell, you're getting three hours just about, you know. I mean, and you can't get everything in that three hours. And I think he mm-hmm. should stop thinking about the, you know, I must play this thing. Uh, it's, it's not really, I don't think it's really true. I agree with you. But I do think as far as Paul Simon's concerned, you know, there's a lot of people out there that love Paul Simon, as I do, and recognize a lot of his great music. But there are some people who look at that period with, with Art Garfunkel as, as, you know, maybe his best, mm-hmm. you know, and would be disappointed that he's not digging into that 
period. But he really spread it out over all the decades, and he did it well. And I wish that, that Paul McCartney would, would use that kind of a model. I think, and I don't know this, I haven't heard anything specific, but I also think that the choices that Paul Simon made for his tour, his farewell tour, in a way downplaying the Simon and Garfunkel years and emphasizing the solo stuff is actually speaks volumes for his relationship at the moment with Art Garfunkel. I don't, mm -hmm. you know, I just get the impression that the relationship, which was never good, may very well have soured even more. And he wanted to make it a point with his farewell tour that this is about Paul Simon. This is mm -hmm. not about Simon and Garfunkel. Right. There's a sampling of our hits. He doesn't even he didn't even make mention of art. I know that. <laughs> and although somebody did say, and I don't remember now, somebody said the Friday night at Madison Square Garden, he might have just in passing mentioned his name. But at the f final show this past Saturday night at Flushing Meadows Corona Park and the first garden show and other shows I know uh, in other parts of the country, no mention of Art Garfunkel. When he did uh, Bridge Over Troubled Water, he led into it by describing a song that he had given away and he was reclaiming it. And on the uh, at the first garden show uh, that I was at, I'm thinking he's not going to do red rubber ball, is he? That's what I was thinking. <laughs> he wrote that. He, the circle recorded it. What does he mean? I gave this song away. I'm claiming it back. And then he starts bridge over troubled water. And I'm thinking, wow, he considers that he considers, he considers it having given that away. Oof. It doesn't say all that much for the fact that, you know, he wants it back from his former partner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> whose name won't be mentioned. So I think the set list for Paul Simon was more of a reflection on the state of their relationship than trying to do an equal sampling of a, an entire career and emphasizing the legendary past like Paul does it with doing so many Beatles songs. Mm -hmm. Paul did stay away from Beatles stuff in the 70s with Wings when the relationship was still not totally healed with the other Beatles. Well, he wanted to prove himself on his own, too. Yeah. Okay, so um, the other surviving Beatle has been busy as well, and uh, Ringo is still touring, um, toured all through the summer, and finally hit New York again, and Ken was there, right? And Darren sort Darren of was almost was there. there. <laughs> Darren had, had a ticket, but Darren did not budget his time correctly and uh, ended up missing the show that night. And uh, and as I think about the fact having miss, missed it, it, you know, just gets me all twisted up and angry again. So let Ken take the uh, the mic and tell us uh, what he experienced and what I missed at Radio City Music Hall. Over to you, Ken. Well, it was it was a great show. I mean, I've seen all of Ringo's tours and this is no different. Um, it was nice to see the, the new additions to the lineup, although Colin Hay has already been part of the All-Stars. It's nice to bring him back. Um, and to have Graham Goldman there, that was a big highlight for me. Um, he did three 10cc songs, Dreadlock Holiday, which was a big hit in many countries, uh, except the United States, although it did get some airplay here. Really good reggae song, which they're, which they're singing, I don't like reggae, I love it. Uh, 
And um, I think a lot of people recognize that one. And of course, the two big hits of The Things We Do For Love and I'm Not In Love. And um, I loved hearing those two songs. And um, they were executed really well. Um, although the I'm Not In Love song didn't have uh, the big boys don't cry section in the middle. But uh, as usual, the Santana songs and the Toto songs work so well live. Steve Lukather is a tremendous guitar player. And, you know, his solos throughout are just amazing for his own songs, for the Santana songs. They seem to be real crowd pleasers. But the one thing that struck me most of all, and this is seeing him at Radio City Music Hall, I've never, and I've been to so many Ringo shows at this point, I've never seen a concert where about 70% of the show, everybody stood up. And I'm not kidding. <laughs> I barely had a chance to sit down. Hmm. You had to stand up or else you couldn't see everybody on the stage. Huh. Usually I'm used to seeing everybody stand up for Yellow Submarine. Everybody stands up for that song. But throughout most of the show, you know, people got up for the, the Santana and the Toto songs. And just to hear the 10cc songs were really nice. I also miss Todd Rundgren a lot because you, you realize after the last five years or so that he's been with this band and in the previous All-Star bands that he... He's very much the, um, you know, the partier. He likes to run around the stage, dance, have all kinds of antics, go behind Ringo at the drums, go behind Greg Raleigh at the keyboards. He moves around a lot and he's, you know, somewhat comical, but none of the other players do that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So it was very noticeable that Todd was not there. Okay. And uh, it was a great show. I mean, anytime you see the All-Star Band, it's a fun show, packed with hits. Colin Hayes' voice was fantastic. Love the songs, you know, Who Can It Be Now and Down Under and Overkill, which is one of my favorite songs of the 80s. You know, it was a tremendous show. You can never go wrong with the all-star lineup. I think Colin Hay is, is, is a perfect member for this, this type concert mm -hmm. where he can, you know, play the big hits and then be part of the house band and for this tour not have to be a heavy as a guitarist which isn't his forte right because you got steve lukather uh, you know handling all of that and you know and colin hay could concentrate on rhythm and then come to the you know this is an ideal setting for him and uh how is graham goldman's voice it was strong i did notice that uh certainly in the case of the things we do for love it was brought down, uh, the key was. And, now, Eric uh, Stewart sang those yes, three songs, or at least two of them. I um, know he sang Lee. Yeah, I know he sang Lee on I'm Not, I'm Not In Love and The Things We Do For Love. Dreadlock Holiday, there was a lot of harmony in that song, but I'm thinking the lead vocals, I'm not sure if that was Graham or, uh -huh. or Eric. Yeah, but, I used, uh, I used, yeah, I forgot. And, and, of course, Ringo was great, too. I just wish, kind of like Paul, that he would add some new material in there his most recent album give more love he did the title track for a few shows and then he dropped the song and um i still wish that uh, we're on the road again would have been added to the set list because it's a great rock song he wrote it with steve lukather steve is in the band <laughs> it's about being on the road it's a perfect song for the band and i don't know why he won't do more of his new material or other solo music perfect show opener i think I agree. That would that would have worked well. Although I do love Matchbox as an opener too. 
Okay, so I hear a listener out there saying, when, when are you guys going to get to the White Album already? But we have <laughs> one other stop before we get to the White Album, and that is the John Lennon Imagine Box. We won't dwell on it because we're going to talk about it, I guess, on the next show when we've all heard it, but I've heard it. So <laughs> I can just say that um, I think, based on what I've heard uh, you know, so far listening to the tracks uh, that, that I think you'll be generally pleased with the sound of it and with um, the bonus materials include a lot of outtakes I've never heard before. Um, a lot of them are also isolations, which are interesting. I mean, you get uh, some John vocal isolations, which are really beautiful. Um, some backing band isolations, some string accompaniment isolations, which are kind of nice too. And then there is a, a disc devoted to sort of compiling from, you know, co various comments of John's about each song, plus, you know, going from the demo to the close to finished version um, that just sort of walks you through the history of each track. So basically, that's all I'll say about that. Um, and we'll talk in greater depth next time about that. And the other thing is, I have the book to the imagined book, but only I think the standard edition, um, the expanded edition I have on order, but I'm reviewing the book for the Washington Post. So I've got the regular one. And I think on that too, um, I think people will be pleased. It's, uh, you know, it's like a lot of these recent Beatles related books and Yoko related books. And she put out some for Genesis and, uh, you know, where you're getting an awful lot of pictures. But it would be wrong to say that it's just a big coffee table book because there is a ton of text. There are text sections devoted to basically everybody who was in the house when John recorded the album. You know, his assistants, his secretaries, there's even a section about Mei Pang, and um, even though in a lot of the other cases the, the person the section is about actually, I guess, spoke to the compilers of the book and, you know, gave memories, Mei didn't, but Yoko basically wrote a section about Mei, which was actually quite nice, um, given, you know, the relationship between the two is not um, from what I can tell, the most friendly, and but she's um, actually paints sort of a, a, a lovely portrait of May. Wow! Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's shocking. Yeah, actually, although her last sentence of this section is, and she was also a really good secretary, <laughs> which I thought, okay, <laughs> okay, you know, it's like giving and taking away. But well, you know, that was uh... <laughs> anyway. Uh, there are tons of reproductions of things beyond, you know, just photos of the sessions. Um, if you like looking at tape boxes and the annotations on tape boxes, there's a lot of that. There's a schematic of um, John's house, uh, floor plan. There are schematics. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I found that interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And also of his, of the section that was the recording studio and it shows the mixing board 
both, you know, the way you usually see a picture of a mixing board, but also with the board opened up so that you can see sort of the electronics inside it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's there's just a lot of stuff I've never seen. There's a a letter uh, that John wrote to someone who wrote an article saying that the Beatles ripped off black music, and that you know that's basically all the Beatles were is a rip off of black music. And John responded to him, you know, basically saying, "Look, you know, we this was the music that we loved, and we always identified it, and we always made it clear that this was black music, so it's really not a rip-off. And, uh, you know, it, it has nothing to do with the Imagine album, but it's obviously from the time, and they have a lot of stuff from the time that just sort of gives you a picture of what's on John's mind as these sessions are going on. So that's that. Oh. The book is called Imagine John Yoko. All right, so that is because I'm trying to. I, I, I wanted to do very. By the time uh, the next show we record, the next edition of things we said today, this stuff will be out. Right. But as we approach early October, and I think everything's coming out the same day. I think mm-hmm. could fifth, be wrong oh, about that. I think October fifth is yeah. The book yeah. that you're talking about, Alan, is the thick. I'll use the description, even though you say it's more than just coffee table book. This does not come with the audio box set. No, no, this is a separate, no. separate. That's mm. the, all right. So Alan elaborated on the book, the actual Imagine album. If uh, I'm looking at this, is going to be available in six configurations. Right. The super deluxe box set, and then the deluxe double CD. There will be a single CD. And here we go with the vinyl. There will be uh, it'll be a double vinyl. So you're going to get some bonus stuff on vinyl along with the original album. Your choice, black vinyl or clear vinyl. I'll take both. Thank you very much. And then, of course, the digital version. And that is the album imagine portion of things. Alan talked about the book, which is sort of the album, but also the, their life john and yoko that right. time mm-hmm. in book form mm-hmm. and then there's the uh films right. that are coming out on dvd and blu-ray ken and right. i had the opportunity to see a preview of the restored imagine movie no Which... relation to the late uh, i guess 1988 uh theatrical release imagine john lennon not that but the John and Yoko film that was uh, released in late 1972 that really is a big music video yeah. mm-hmm. of Imagine and selections from Yoko's album Fly. Ken and I had the opportunity to see that. We could talk about that on the next show when the disc is available. And it's being coupled with the documentary Gimme Some Truth, the making of the Imagine album. Mm-hmm. So those two films will be in one package on DVD and Blu-ray at roughly the same time as the big box set comes out and other configurations of the Imagine album and the book that Alan elaborated on that will be out. So Mm -hmm. I I think I got it all down. Then if somebody could email me and explain it all back to me, uh, (laughs) because I get confused very easily with all of these different configurations and mega books. Is there more than one book, did you say, Alan? Is there two um, editions? There are, I think, three editions. Oh, come on. Now, this is... Let me get a pen. 
No, I'm kidding. <laughs> okay, there's there's the standard trade edition, which is, I believe, the one that I have at the moment. There is a somewhat more deluxe edition with many more pages worth of pictures. But I think the text may be the same. And then there was a super-duper extra special deluxe edition. <laughs> I don't know what it's called. Um, and I think that was essentially the same as the second version, but was autographed by Yoko. I, I, could, oh, okay. I, I could be wrong, but I think that's what it was. And that one, by the time I got around to ordering it, was all sold out. So save me a couple of hundred bucks there. But... <laughs> um, <and laughs> except that, that, that edition. Except that now that I'm going to have to find it anyway <laughs> somehow. That edition actually had the uh, coffee cup stains right. uh, that were made uh, by Yoko on those copies. So, Could be. anyway, so enough. That, that is imagine uh, early October coming to a store near you. Mm. So much stuff. Oh, yeah. Well, so we were going to talk about the White Elm, but we're out of time. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> so well, really, imagine's white. We did talk about that White Elm. That's true. Mm. Uh, so, um, you know, we everyone had, I think, who who really cares about this stuff had been hearing bits and pieces of what was going to be included over the last week as various people sort of leaked things, and in, including Giles Martin, who gave an interview. Uh, I can't can't remember to who, but uh, there there was a, an interview online um, at the end of last week in which he talked about it a bit. Uh, what didn't talk about specific tracks but talked about working on it and um so we finally have uh, answered the big debate between i guess me and um our former colleague al sussman i guess he's still our colleague he's just not on the show anymore and al insisted that there wouldn't be another set like the pepper set and i was pretty sure that giles uh sort of grammatical slip in an interview about the white album being the next one really was saying the white album will be the next one and i win that one fortunately <laughs> al and i bet three hundred thousand dollars on that and i will be waiting to collect uh, <laughs> just kidding al. i was in agreement with you alan <laughs> I, I, well, as yeah, well, far as i was concerned as long as sergeant pepper did well you know, and that all is based on, well, whether the record company was happy with the sales, yeah. then I, I would have foresawn, you know, this and next Abbey Road and then let it be. Absolutely. Um, so it looks like they are doing a pretty spectacular job with this. Uh, should we just go through quickly, you know, what the CD layout is? Mm -hmm. sure. Okay, so on the Super Deluxe Edition, which is actually all I care about, although there are cut-down versions too, CDs 1 and 2 are obviously the White Album, but in a new stereo mix by Giles. Can we assume that this is similar to the new remix of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band last year? I'm not sure, because with that, he was trying to reproduce the mono album in stereo. And in this one, I don't think that's the order of the day. I think he just wants to um, clean it up a bit. From the little bit I've heard of, uh, there's a sample track on Beatles.com of, of back in the USSR. And the drums and bass are, as in previous Giles remixes, much more present 
than mm. they are on the, the standard album. Usually that's good news for both Paul and Ringo. In this case, it's just good news for Paul because he plays both bass and drums on that track. Um, <laughs> but the drums sounded really, really crisp. I mean, they only give you a minute of it, but uh, it sounded good. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, CD3, the Esher demos. Yay! Um, <laughs> we all know and love the Esher demos, um, but we have only heard 23 of the 27, and we will now get all 27 and all of them in stereo. Wait um, a minute. They're actually going to completely offer something? Because it always seems like with these Beatle releases, we get samplings of these things. Yeah. You I know, th- when the anthology albums came out, George Martin could have put included this. Why didn't he include that? But at least we get this. But why did he put a fade out on it? Why didn't he leave it like it sounded? So we're going to get all of the songs on the Esher yeah. demos. Yeah. There you go. That's I great. think they have, I think with Pepper, they completely rethought the approach to archival stuff. You know, in the anthology, they, they, they Frankenstein different takes and they, you know, they monkeyed around a lot with what we got on pepper was much more more the pure track you know and i think that's going to be the case here too and the isha demos uh now will be in stereo and uh what they have done is they've sequenced them in the sequence that the songs appear on the album and put the songs that weren't on the album at the end of which there's you know tracks 20 to 27 weren't on the white album so those are all. Do we know the Esher tapes? What is the closest to a master? Uh, it, was this a collection of cassettes? A cassette? Was it reel to reel? The source of the Esher tapes is what? Do you do we know? I think it's open reel, and George owned the original copy, so it would mean that Olivia supplied that mm-hmm. um, to Apple at the time of the anthology. George was asked for the material and he brought in, you know, like five tracks, however many there were on the anthology and said, that's all there is. And everybody knew that that wasn't all there is, but nobody was going to fight with him. I think, in fact, Darren, um, some of the uh, things that you may have disliked about anthology things, uh, releases actually have to do with George. George was the one who wanted to cut out some of the repetitions on Shout because he thought it was self-indulgent. He <laughs> vetoed, apparently, from what I've heard, uh, including things like Carnival of Light and the 27-Minute Helter Skelter because they were self-indulgent. And he also made an edit of You Know My Name, Look Up the Number because he thought it was, you want to guess? <laughs> self-indulgent and bizarrely though all the things that he cut out of that version of you know my name look up the number were on the single so it was able to it was possible to recreate the complete take by using both the single and the anthology track except that the anthology track was in stereo and the single was in mono (laughs) all right yep so the Easier demos are disc three. Discs four, five, and six are session outtakes. And that stuff looks just great. You know, there's uh, not the 27 minute Helter Skelter. 
but the 12-minute Helter Skelter, which we heard five minutes of on the anthology, now we get the whole thing. Possibly a mixed blessing. I thought the one on the anthology was a little on the dull side, you know. I think all of us fantasize when we read in Mark Lewison's book about a 27-minute Helter Skelter that it was 27 minutes of the raucous take that's on the White Album, not 26, you know, 27 minutes of a slow, swampy blues. You know? mm-hmm. um, but uh, when the anthology came out, I, I asked Mark, is, so is the 27-minute one more like this or more like the album one? And he said, no, it's, it's more like this. And he said, I, I don't know why everybody is so fascinated with the 27-minute Helter Skelter. And like, uh, come on, did you read your book? <laughs> Everyone is fascinated <laughs> with it entirely because of his book. So, yeah. Anyway. So going back to what you said before about George, yeah. the other Beatles at the time mm-hmm. wanted Carnival of Light out? Um, I don't know if they necessarily wanted it out, but they wanted to discuss the possibility. You know, at the time... Paul made, uh, Paul and Linda possibly uh, made one of those photo films using Linda's photography mm-hmm. and the Beatles' Carnival of Light as the soundtrack. So he may not hate it as much as uh, the person Bruce Spicer talked to <laughs> <laughs> who, who heard it. Um, but, you know, I, I think most people probably would not know what to make of it but uh but paul obviously has uh you know some sort of fondness for it or he wouldn't have used it as the soundtrack of one of those photo films Mm. i see a carnival of light 27 minute helter skelter coming out at some point for a 60th anniversary maybe or Mm -hmm. it just seems like those things will at some point in our lifetime (laughs) see the light of day and we're being set up right now for uh, their emergence. I can't believe that I'm, I'm so excited hearing this. And I saw very quickly earlier in the day, the day that we recorded the show was the day that the details, all of the details have been released, were released. Mm-hmm. We're recording this the same day as the, you get the point. I actually haven't uh, like, di- I didn't dissect anything. So hearing you say that there's going to be three CDs of, of session entries. outtakes, as opposed to, a selection of 10 tracks is, uh, you know, this is wonderful news. Yeah. Well, so three CDs of session outtakes plus 27 demos for the Easter tapes. That's quite, mm-hmm. I believe the three CDs include a total of 50 tracks. And are they all, uh, of the six CD of the six discs? Are we talking CDs or is there a combination of Blu-ray audio coming into the picture here or, yeah, the um the six C D version, the whatever, super deluxe whatever they're calling it, also has a Blu-ray, not a DVD, just Blu-ray this time. And it includes a high definition version of the two thousand eighteen stereo mix that is disc one and two of the CDs, a five point well two 5.1 mixes. One is uh, DTS and one is Dolby. Uh, So you have your choice of 5.1 mixes and the mono mix, the original mono mix in a new direct transfer from the master. All on one disc. All on one disc, but no video. Now we do already have 
the Hey Jude and Revolution clips and the Lady Madonna clips and um, the Hey Bulldog clip that really, you know, with it was used as a Lady Madonna clip. But there is a lot of other video around that they could have, should have included, I think. Mm. There's all the what? video that, um, you know, from the music special of, it has another name too, but the where, they, where it shows them recording Hey Jude. Uh, there's there's that clip plus there's a lot of outtakes from that you know from which that was cobbled together um there what else there is that clip that they made as a promo for apple back at at the time that shows paul recording blackbird Mm -hmm. and many other things but you know they could have could have included that whole little promo and uh, and in fact, you know, again, with with that too, there must be plenty of outtake footage. So it's it's kind of a pity that the Blu-ray doesn't include some video too. Alan, did you happen to notice if any of the tracks that are part of the outtakes are the same ones that were on the anthology? Um, well, you know, like with as I mentioned with Helter Skelter, right? Five minutes of it was on the anthology. Um, mm. You know, I haven't compared all of the take numbers um i believe the anthology obla di obla da we had take four here we got take three um but there are you know some questions about which take three it is because with some of these songs they made several different versions you know the, there was the original obla di obla da was sort of acoustic guitar based and uh, then they changed the arrangement completely and that would have had a whole new number of, of, of session t- of takes. So it's not always clear which version all of these takes are, you know, uh, there is for, uh, people who want to look into, uh, an early report on this Rolling Stone, uh, did a piece, uh, Rob Sheffield, mm-hmm. uh, did a sort of an early listening kind of thing where he describes some of what the tracks are. And uh, so so that's kind of useful. Some of them are, you know, like with the Imagine album, the, some of them are instrumental backing tracks. Uh, there's a Dear Prudence, it's just vocal, guitar, and drums. And, you know, the big surprise here, unnumbered rehearsal of Let It Be. Oh, I had heard about, I had heard about that. Yeah. Uh, being included. That's fabulous. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, and we do, so, I think, get another version of uh, 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 another outtake of the version of Helter Skelter that is on the album. Don't know how long it is, though. Mm-hmm. Could actually combine all the Helter Skelters together and make a double album. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. I'm just thinking about the fact that I'm probably going to have to uh, get a paper route for a second job to pay for. The White Album, Imagine, Deluxe, Egypt Station thing that all that stuff that's coming out here at the end of the year. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, well, and then you know, maybe Wildlife and Red Rose Speedway, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, uh, you know, I just got a new app um, that Apple put out that attaches right to my wallet. You know, the money does not pass go. It just goes right <laughs> into the app directly to Apple. So... <laughs> Yeah. So hopefully, hopefully, uh, this is the today's show. This show is somewhat of a 
summarization of all of the madness of releases that are coming that we will be dissecting in future shows as we make our way through the fall. And I know at least talking about the Imagine stuff, it helped sort things out from my head on what's coming out. Because, again, I get confused so easily with all of these different configurations and whatnot. So do we know with the White Album, we will have the big box set with the six yes. discs and the Blu-ray, and I would imagine... Okay. That, nope. Well, there will also uh, be a three CD digipack, which will have the standard album in the 2018 remix, and the third disc is the Esher demos. Um, yeah. That version will also be released as a four LP limited edition vinyl box, and okay. as a digital download collection. Um, and. Then there is the standard 2LP vinyl, 180 gram, that is just the 2018 remix of the album. Okay. All right. I mean, so that's we for now, now will have actually the white album, three different versions of the standard 90 minute, 30 song album. Mm-hmm. The uh, stereo mix from 09, the mono mix that came out in 09, now the new 2018 mix. So those all three will be available on vinyl and then all the other bells and whistles that are coming out this year. Basically, yeah. Does that make any sense? So for me, just get the deluxe version. That's it. Just back. For, and for me, it's back the truck up and just throw them in the back. Give me at least one of everything and I'll work, sort it all out later. Mm. Yeah. You know, the thing is, if you, you want to go uh, minimalist here... <laughs> Getting just the super deluxe edition will give you everything. I mean, the rest of them are simply if you collect variant formats. I mean, the same way we you, you could you could say the same thing with you know just get the target version of Egypt Station. You know, I mean right. the other the other stuff that we got is because we collect you know sort of inclusively. Uh, so. But yeah, the super deluxe is is I think clearly the way to go. Uh, and you know, one of the one at some point in this, there's going to be a white vinyl, oh, white undoubtedly. album. Oh, undoubtedly. I wonder Makes if they'll sense. put out a cassette version too. <laughs> Maybe we'll see how right. Egypt Station does. <laughs> I know I'm going to go right to the Esher demos and the three CDs of outtakes. Oh yeah. And if if the Esher demos sound anything as good as the handful that were on the anthology, and they're I'm sure they're going to be probably even better. Possibly. Then, uh, then we're in for some treat right there. Um, the Esher demo of Back in the USSR, I believe, is Apple is um, sort of has out there online as well as a YouTube clip. So you can mm-hmm. check that one out. Cool. Yeah. And I think, you know, probably over the coming weeks, they're going to put out more and more little videos. Um, the, the press materials came with uh, an unboxing video that just showed all the different editions, you know, being spread out and, you know, the discs coming out and then the whole thing being reassembled into the box. It was kind of nice. But there was also a clip uh, of Giles and Sam Okel talking about remixing the album and what they had in mind uh look for that on youtube as well it's really kind of interesting um mm-hmm. because they talk about the differences uh in the problems that they face between this and sergeant pepper 
you know, because they were recorded in completely different ways. And um, they also said, and this is kind of interesting, that, you know, listening to all the session tapes, you know, you hear an awful lot about how the, there were tensions during the White Album and they were really four solo artists doing their own thing and, you know, barely getting along and all that. And Ken Scott has always said, you know, I, I, I hear that, but that's not how I remember those sessions. I remember those sessions as being very friendly and a lot of fun. And now Giles says that listening to the tapes, that's his impression too. Huh. So, you know, we make it... Mm. Darren? No, no, I said interesting. Yeah, we, we may get a completely different impression of, of the album, you know, based on the other materials and, you know, uh, also the super deluxe version comes with a big book, too. So there'll probably be plenty of information in that. And yet, if you remember the interview that Paul gave to Paul Gambaccini, mm -hmm. he said the White Album was the tense album. Yeah, and John always said that too. John said it was here. We were already four solo artists. Mm. Um, so, but you know, it's interesting. Someone, someone sort of wondered. Uh, I can't remember where I read this, but it it kind of makes sense. Um, I think someone asked Giles. You know, do you think, or maybe Giles suggested it? Do you think that perhaps our view of the history of the White Album is colored by the fact that? the recently disbanded Beatles talked about it in those terms, you know, and for various reasons, each of them, or at least John and Paul, uh, and, and George to a degree too, had reasons to feel disgruntled about the way things ended up and sort of projected some of that onto the White Album. Now, in George's case, you know, we do know that he put a lot of work into Well My Guitar Gently Weeps and couldn't get a lot of cooperation and brought in Eric Clapton largely because he knew that with an outsider in, in the group, they would all behave better. And as it is, John didn't, I don't think, even turn up for that session. So not, not sure about that, but I think John doesn't play on it. And also, there are a lot of songs on the White Album that don't have all four Beatles on there. Right. But a lot of that is because some of those songs didn't require it. No. Like Julia or Blackbird, you know. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I think there was so much going on during those sessions that, you know, Paul could say, take Ringo and say, let's go into, you know, Studio 3 and just do something in there while they're working on overdubs for whatever else it was. Right. That was my impression of the way that album was done. Well, you know, this is reminding me of what some people have said about the Let It Be sessions. There are some people who think that they were miserable sessions altogether, that they weren't getting along. And you can hear that in some of the bootlegs. Mm -hmm. And then you could also hear them having fun. That is true. <laughs> so, and Ringo said in the, in the uh, documentary that came with the 2009 releases, he remembered having a great time at the Let It Be sessions. Yeah. So... I guess since you brought that up, Ken, <laughs> <laughs> what a segue! We should mention uh, an interview that, that Ken alluded to earlier in the show. Actually, way, way back when we were talking about Egypt Station and Canadian interview that Paul gave, where Paul talked about uh, a new version of Let It Be coming out, and this is, I think, going to be a little controversial. 
because, um, and it's something we've talked about before, uh, which is the idea of re-editing Let It Be to include more of the fun stuff that went on uh, and make a, a somewhat less dark film. Um, and a lot of people, I think, will think that that is changing history. Re you remember we had a guest on that uh, Steve asked that question to. Uh, is it changing history? And uh, I, I think that's what a lot of people will think. And I, I think what they should do is put out both the original film and their new version of the film. But a lot of people that I know began saying once, you know, at, at this point, all those Nagra tapes that we have, I mean, we have basically the whole session and you can hear there's some tension and there's some boredom and there's some things that would be boring to listeners, but not necessarily to a band who's in the process of learning the songs, which are new to everybody. But there's also a lot of fun and a lot of bright stuff. And and I know one person said at one point after hearing all the Nagras, why did that film look like that? It it does not represent what we hear on these tapes. And mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, this is... And apparently Olivia and Yoko both were against uh, Let It Be coming out because it, it was so dark and it was so miserable. And I think that possibly the idea of re-editing it using a lot of the outtake footage and showing a, a brighter view of it uh, may have convinced them to release it at all. Well, you know, we can speculate, uh, and it'd be very, very premature, but if done correctly and not presented as Let It Be, it could be uh, a huge release to have a new film from those sessions. Mm-hmm as long as it's not referred to as let it be right it may maybe now call it get back or whatever yeah. uh but to have i think a clean something coming out of those sessions i would welcome even if it's not the original movie we all have our or many of us have our bootlegged versions of uh let it be to sit, you know to fall back on mm -hmm. this is giving you healthy chunks of performances that maybe we haven't seen before. Just don't call it, let it be. Right. You know, interesting. So. Mm. I don't know about that. I have no problem. If you add more material to let it be, as long as you don't take out anything that was in the original film. But that's the thing, you know, if the, we are representing this, they are going to leave the negative stuff on the floor. They're going to take out of what was in Let It Be in theaters in 1970 and not give it to you if they're looking to re-edit this film in a new light. Mm. Then it's not Let It Be anymore. It's not realistic. They should they should give you both. You know. Yeah. It's, but you know what? But why we always the say they want to hide the original and the, and they don't want to emphasize the negative. Why are we making a new mix to begin with? You know what I'm why, saying? Why can't you have the positive and negative mixed together so you see both sides in one We film? want it, but yeah. clearly the powers that be at Apple, we know who they are, don't want it. Mm. Or it would have been out already. Mm -hmm. To be continued in our, on our <laughs> show in 2020 for the 50th anniversary of Let It Be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As Paul has said, Yoko and Olivia are Beatles in the sense that they have an equal vote. So Right. 
Well, there you go. You know, we say at the beginning of the show that we talk about the group and solo artists, past, present, and things to come. And I think in this show, we've pretty much covered all of that. <laughs> yes, we and have. And Paul Simon. And Paul uh. Simon. <laughs> <laughs> So we uh, have, as I say, covered an awful lot of ground and uh, taken an awful lot of time doing it. Thank you for listening. I hope you have been glued to your headphones or speakers or however you listen to the podcast. And um, I think before we say goodbye, we'll go around and get everyone's contact information. So Darren, start with you. All right. Uh, if you go to Facebook, the Facebook page that you should like is called Darren DeVivo on WFUV Radio. Uh, that is more of my what I would well what I would in a perfect world. That's more of my broadcasting Facebook page as opposed to my personal one. So look for Darren DeVivo on WFUV Radio on Facebook. If you want to shoot me an email, my WFUV email address is my name, Darren DeVivo, D-A-R-R-E-N-D-E-V-I-V-O, at WFUV.org. Okay. Uh, and before we move over to Ken, I'll just give you the general contact information for the show, which is you can email us at thingswesaidtodayradioshow at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at at sign things we said fab and we have a facebook page which is things we said today beatles radio fans ken uh my email address is every little thing at att.net you can check out my website kenmichaelsradio.com where you can listen to loads of interviews with people in the beetle world musicians authors you name it plus beatles trivia where you can win one of nine prizes every single week, including Paul McCartney's new album on CD, Egypt Station. And um, and don't forget, I have uh, another new show, a video podcast called Talk More Talk with uh, Kid O'Toole, Ken Womack, and Tom Hunyadi. Like this show, it's bi-weekly. It's a live video broadcast on Tuesday nights, usually at 9 or 10 p.m., eastern standard time and then it stays on our facebook page and it's also going on youtube and eventually it'll also be on podbean the audio for that and uh, itunes as well the facebook page is talk more talk a solo beatles video cast okay so i've got that show and my syndicated show every little thing and the website it's plenty there to keep me busy <laughs> and and this show Okay. Um, and I might as well plug one of my things. <laughs> it's not really sure. my thing. I'm just going to be at it. There is the Beatles White Album International Symposium at Monmouth University in New Jersey. You know, since nobody's going to be talking about the White Album uh, uh, right around the time this happens, which is November 8th through 11th. Uh, in other words, starting the day before the album reissue is released and continuing all through that weekend. Um, it's run by Ken Womack, who is the dean of the school. And let's see who will be there uh, besides me. There is Mark Lewison. You've all heard of him. Um, he is giving the keynote speech at this 
symposium, I believe, on the last day. Uh, I don't think the schedule is totally set yet, but uh, begins on that Thursday night with a performance by the Weaklings um, and a White Album listening party moderated by Bruce Spicer. There is a, ooh, a book signing of Tune In with Mark, uh, more several White Album panels, and I am going to be speaking on Sunday about the Revolution Trilogy, um, particularly Revolution Number 9, because that's everybody's favorite track, right? Um, other people who are there, Ken Mansfield, Jeff Emmerich, Chris Thomas, was, you know, Emmerich and Thomas were both part of the sessions, uh, Rob Sheffield, Walter Everett, Tim Riley, Mark Lapidos, Al Sussman, um, Scott Fryman, who does that Deconstructing the Beatles series, John mm-hmm. Kovach uh, from the University of Rochester, Jude Sutherland-Kessler, who's been a guest here, Edward Green, uh, Fulbright Specialist in American Music, um, Richard Buskin, Eric Taros, Robert Rodriguez, we can see some sparks flying there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lots of people, lots and lots of people. Uh, so that should be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to that. And uh, so that is November 8th through 11th at Monmouth University. You can look it up online and see how to register for that if you want to go. To contact me, I mean, apart from the things we said today, radio show at gmail.com mail, email address, you can get me at my Facebook page or my Facebook pages. One of them is just plain old Alan Cozen and the other is Alan Cozen Remixed. Um, not done by Giles. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he would do a good job. <laughs> and not coming out on cassette. <laughs> right, or 8-track. So, thanks again for listening, and for Ken Michaels and Darren DeVivo, I'm Alan Cozen saying goodnight, and see you next time. Take care.